You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Ishan Tharoor, a foreign affairs columnist here at The Post, an anchor of today's worldview, The Post's daily column and newsletter on international politics. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Sanjana Satyan, the author of the critically acclaimed book, Gold Diggers, which is now out in paperback. Sanjana, thanks for joining us. Hi, Ishan. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, let's let's jump in. Let's start. Uh, let's start about a bit. Let's get to know you a bit better. Let's hear a bit about, a bit about your personal story. As you said, in as we we heard you say in this video, um, there was a moment for you where you recognized there was a kind of advantage in your feeling of outsiderness, uh, and and that, op- and and you and, and you kind of used that to your benefit. When did that awareness click in, uh, and when did you feel that sense of agency? in your complicated sense of self? (laughs) I think that that became really clear to me at a very young age. I grew up um, here in Atlanta, where I'm talking to you from, uh, in kind of a very split life. There was the the suburbs where I grew up in that had a lot more kind of Asian American community and presence, a lot of Indian people kind of all jostling together. Um, But I went to school around mostly white people. And you kind of had a choice early on to feel uh, frustrated by being made to feel different, being kind of an outsider in school constantly, or you could just sort of in moments get over it and write about it. And I think that uh, the instant I started writing uh, in middle and high school, I knew that the outsiderness was an advantage, even if it didn't feel that way in day-to-day life. Um, I think that the time it really started to feel like an advantage that I could wield was when I developed like more of an aesthetic and a voice. And that came later in my 20s um, when I realized that it was fun to not just linger in the sort of sadness of being an outsider, but to have a sense of humor about it and, and realize that being an outsider can sometimes make people do ridiculous or funny or interesting things. Like that's when you can turn it into plot and art. You talked about, I think, the, the term you've deployed is this idea of conceptual orphans, that, that we are uh, uh, Indians in America, you know, are, are kind of stranded between two worlds in a certain sense. And you navigate that quite cleverly in the book. You were a journalist uh, as well, and you spent some time in journalism. What made you sort of more attracted to fiction writing and what drew you, what sort of, what did fiction offer you? Uh, when it came to kind of navigating this idea of your conceptual orphanness? Um, Well, as a fiction writer, I didn't have to go out and do uh, person on the street reporting, which was great for me. I was not uh, crazy about sort of the the actual uh, day-to-day work of journalism. I didn't love reporting. What I loved was that it gave me a way to ask kind of questions about the world, but I was really kind of most natively always fiction writer. I think the The very first work that I loved uh, was fiction, novels, and short stories. Um, My grandmother and my great-grandmother before her uh, uh, were and are translators, um, uh, translated from Malayalam into English. And so I grew up with literature being this kind of valued and important thing in my life. And I don't know, there's just a sense of mystery and metaphor that is accessible um, in fiction that 
uh, I think felt necessary to me because I felt like I had to create the world that I was writing about. I had to create a voice and create an aesthetic for it. I wasn't ever going to be able to just represent what was around me as kind of is is the job to record faithfully in nonfiction. Um, and uh, the, the novel uses magical realism to sort of transmute reality. Uh, uh, as uh, Salman Rushdie has talked about, sometimes uh, when re your reality feels unreal, uh, you have to turn to fiction, turn to invention, and particularly turn to magical realism or unreal fiction in order to find the language that uh, is not available in your day-to-day -day concrete material reality. And you certainly have. I mean, have you been struck by the extent to which your debut novel has resonated with the with the wider audience? The fact that it's been optioned now for a television show by Mindy Kaling. I mean, give us your thoughts on on, on the impact that your book has had, and has it surprised you? It's been really touching. Um, I mean, the book uh, definitely represents a corner of the Indian American experience. Um, and I think it does so with affection for the community that I'm writing about, but it's also sort of sarcastic and critical and kind of lampoons my own community by really lampooning characters who are like me. Uh, so I wasn't sure that people would like it because um, uh, I'm not sure that people always like to see themselves criticized or implicated. It's not a sort of hashtag representation matters take on my community. I wasn't ever gonna be um, content in just putting on the page who we are. I was going to laugh at who we are and criticize who we are when we kind of all get together in the way that people like Philip Roth uh, did about their own communities. Um, and so I've been pleased to see that people, when they see themselves represented, they're also able to see and kind of digest a critique of our community. The novel makes kind of a point about or, or investigates the question of ambition and what it's like when a community is so dependent on ambition to assimilate and kind of achieve their way into the mainstream. And so what matters most to me is not just that people see themselves in uh, the story, that's, that's nice, but um, it's been nice to see people engage with this question of, is ambition worth it? Does it poison us? Can it be toxic? Um, and as for the TV, like it's going to be really exciting to get to explore that visually in new narrative language and then kind of for a larger stage. And the question of ambition is uh, explored specifically through the Indian American community and my Indian American community, but it's really a universal question. And so I've heard from certainly non-Indian, non-Asian American people who have read this book and said, you know, I know it wasn't about me, but it was about my relationship with ambition. And I saw that kind of complication represented uh, in a way that included me. And um, yeah, I think that fiction can be very universal beyond kind of racial categories. Do you see yourself um, writing in a particular tradition? You, you just mentioned Rushdie and his magical realism, of course, in your book, uh, Ambition, uh, is kind of bottled and 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 and, and made with the process of alchemy and melt. I don't want to give away too much in the book, but it's 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 a wonderful way of of thinking through uh, the ways in which Indians Indian Americans navigate their their kind of societal pressures. Uh, but and and then of course you also have in the book. Uh, these these great moments of, of kind of investigating history, the kind of these these moments of digressions into history that you know I I, I felt kind of you know echoes of Amitabh Ghosh, for example, uh, and then at the same time, of course, you're 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 really telling an American story. So when you were writing this book, 
what kind of space did you think you were inhabiting? What traditions were you summoning? And what traditions did you want to be summoning, I think? Um, yeah, I haven't heard the Amitav Ghosh one. That's cool. Um, I'm glad to see that uh, that came through. Um, uh, I definitely felt like uh, the tradition of magical realism was very important. And obviously, Rushdie sort of was influenced by Latin American magical realists, um, Marquez, who was a journalist, um, uh, and sort of the idea that uh, not just magical realism as a way to sort of break reality, but as a way to authentically represent reality. Um, some of my first favorite writers were people like Julio Cortázar and, and Marquez, so the, the Latin American magical realists. Um, but as you say, it's also a deeply, deeply American novel. And two touchstones for it were, you know, Gatsby was the novel that introduced me to American literature when I was 14, 15. Um, there's a little bit of Holden Caulfield um, cross from Catcher in the Rye, crossed with Esther Greenwood from the Brett Bell Jar, those two sort of quintessential young American narrators. And then the narrator of All the King's Men, Jack Burden, um, she's this great post-war novel about Southern politics, Louisiana politics. He's a journalist and a historian, so there's a lot of All the King's Men in there, um, a novel that people don't read that much anymore. And then the other kind of tradition that I think I was picking up was um, the kind of 20th century comic uh, tradition. And so you have the English comic novel, um, and my favorite English comic novel is um, the, the Buddha of Suburbia, which is an Indian English comic novel, um, a wonderful coming of age story, uh, kind of deeply satirical, also deeply political uh, about race and class in Thatcher era England. Um, and then Zadie Smith and Philip Roth, who I think are these writers who stand out as being chroniclers of their community, who also lampooned and uh, investigated, like used their specific community uh, to say something very universal um, uh, and do so kind of with comic, uh, uh, you know, worlds and pirouettes. So turning to your background, you were raised in Atlanta, the suburbs of Atlanta, and that 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 you see that also. I mean, clearly there must be quite a few autobiographical gestures in the first part of the book, at least. Uh, at least I'm sure your parents were were picking up some echoes here and there. Uh, because it's set in the, the suburbs of Atlanta. Uh, but putting that aside, putting, putting that to a side, uh, could we talk a bit, last year, of course, we had uh, these horrible spa shootings in, in the environs of Atlanta, and you wrote about them uh, in a column for the Los Angeles Times. Could you talk a bit, you know, we are, you and I are both Indian Americans, but but this is, it was this was a moment for Asian Americans writ large. And could you talk a bit about, you know, your sense of Asian American identity, uh, the, the and perhaps the fragility of it, and what say a moment as horrific as those shootings did for you, and when you thought about yourself and your place in this country. Yeah, um, I think one of the most eloquent people to respond to these moments is is Jay Caspian Kang, who often kind of reminds. Asian Americans about the falseness of the idea of Asian America. Um, you know, these are not communities that had anything necessarily in common back in Asia. There are some shared legacies of imperialism or colonialism, um, but it's basically a, a false legal identity created in America. Um, and so in moments of crisis, um, he reminds us that uh, it's dangerous to kind of grasp at a tragedy that may or may not be about someone who is exactly like you. For instance, in the spa shootings, the Asian Americans 
who were killed were from a very different um, ethnic and class uh, and sort of social background than the Asian America I grew up in. Um, and so I feel like it's really important to identify those differences. Um, I think it's also very possible to sort of recognize and, and feel a shared pain. Um, uh, I did not live the lives that those people that made those women as vulnerable as they were. Um, but I do remember what it's like to just feel different and to know that um, you don't know what someone else thinks about you. You have no idea how they process you as belonging or not belonging. And to know that physical safety and like life itself is um, fragile when someone else just decides to define who you are. Um, I think that's a really complex thing to hold. Um, Kathy Park Hong um, reminds us too, she's a wonderful poet and critic who posits this idea that Asian America, of course, it is false, but we can choose to opt into it as a kind of coalition, as a kind of solidarity. And so I think that a lot of Asian Americans, um, my age, our age, are rethinking this identity that maybe was like forced onto us by Scantron demographic bubbles and saying, how can we both be really critical of it and uh, know that it is not actually accurate, but can we find a way to make it work as a political identity that um, coheres and is cohesive? And obviously that's something that I'm sure we're all thinking about um, after this weekend and the California church shootings as well. Right. I mean, I, I, that, that was going to be my next question. I mean, I think there's this, for years, there's this, been this kind of narrative of invisibility that surrounded uh, Asian Americans. And now uh, many communities of various sorts uh, are finding themselves visible in ways they probably don't want to be. Uh, and targets of a, a kind of ascendant nativism uh, in this country. Do you personally feel concerned or fearful for Indian Americans, for your, the community that you grew up in? Do you, do you feel a sense of threat that wasn't there before? Yeah, I mean, you, uh, it, I alternate, I think, like so many people. Um, uh, half the time, I feel like a totally insulated, privileged coastal elite and um, don't kind of shoulder that, that sort of constant um, physical terror. Um, I'm insulated by a lot of things. Uh, class, caste, a lot of stuff that um, mean that I am not as on the front line as someone who is working in a spa or in a liquor store or in a gas station. Um, but then, of course, I mean, mass shootings are totally, they're, they're, they're often random. Um, I live in Georgia. It's very easy to get a gun. I, I don't think I'm different from a lot of other people. And being kind of aware and just knowing that parts of your brain switch on when you're moving through certain spaces um, in America that I know like my white friends do not, that that part of their brain just doesn't switch on. They don't have the extra awareness. Um, I think as far as art goes though, uh, it, it's not that helpful to make art from that position of terror. And so it is especially important to me when I'm working to try and create a little bit of space to absorb and be informed by the fear and terror and anxiety, um, but also to have enough distance that um, my art is not like subservient to terror or hate or whatever you want to call it. I think in the Trump era, there was um, a risk of making, when we're still in the Trump era, um, there's a risk of making art that only responds to the moment and that is trapped by the moment. And I actually think one of the most radical things about art is that it can speak to, but also speak against a given moment. And it can be the place that is 
free of tyranny, where like comedy is still possible, where humanity is still possible, that it's not the news cycle. So to, to go to uh, uh, an aspect of art that may not be as freeing as what you were referring to, I mean, in the intro video, uh, we pointed out how when you were younger, you had to deal with uh, comparisons to the Simpsons character of who. Uh, and and I'm curious, you know, this is obviously one of the most flattening, irritating uh, cultural tropes that exists in this country about Indians. I mean, what do you make of how did you deal with it at the time? And and you know, what do you think about this character of Apu that, for a generation of Americans, has come to be a stand-in for a kind of Indianness? Yeah. Um, well, there there is a documentary worth um, checking out called The Problem with Apu. Um, uh, it, I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons. I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of American television. Um, uh, if I did, I snuck it. Um, uh, so I never actually saw this representation. Um, uh, but it does stick with me, like being called Apu on a playground, being told, a, a friend told me, that he couldn't be my friend anymore because my family prayed to stone. Um, I mean, how ridiculous are these uh, these depictions, these ideas? Um, they sting, they hurt, they make me, these days they just make me angry. Um, like I still get angry when uh, people talk about The Simpsons as this like co comic icon. Um, uh, but I also like have to take my own experience with a grain of salt and laugh at the ridiculousness of being trapped in pop culture and being dependent on kind of that representation. Um, it's the kind of thing where I would rather not talk about it. I would rather talk about other things, but then other people force you to talk about it. And so I think that is like the problem of making art as a like non-majority person is um, you feel this pull away from the narrative that you know, people who kind of want to deny your humanity force onto you. Um, and so you want to be able to write against that, but eventually you're often forced back into it. And Gold Diggers kind of is, it's concerned with that. There's a beauty pageant um, in which one of the characters is constantly asked to define what it means to be Indian and American. And the narrator, Neil, uh, thinks this is a very silly question. Um, he's uh, He thinks it's trite. He thinks it forces boiled down answers. Um, but then the book itself ends up being inevitably concerned with that. And I, I think that's just sort of the constant oscillation as um, artists of color, non-majority artists. Are we going to answer that question? Or are we not? Can we do we have to write about race? Um, is there a way to not write about race? Is it possible to escape your identity? Probably not. And, and of course, South Asian Americans, Desi Americans, uh, have come quite a far way in, in the realms of pop culture since The Simpsons. And we, I mean, of course, there's Mindy Kaling and, and your upcoming adaptation of your novel, uh, but you have a whole world of other shows, uh, Never Have I Ever, you have, um, major comics who are of Indian origin who are telling very nuanced uh, stories. Uh, do you think still at this point uh, that there is a particular South Asian story that Americans seem to need to hear or that do you feel that Desi Americans are still in the arts, are still straightjacketed in some way in terms of what they can need or can do to develop an audience? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I would probably resist the uh, that Americans need to hear um, a component of the the question. I, I I think it's what stories artists can or want to tell. Um, it is so tricky as an artist who is not constantly represented or well represented um, uh, in pop culture uh, to know that your community can maybe expect you to stand for everyone, uh, but uh, you can't tell everyone's stories. And so all you can ask for is the right to tell a particular story that is your experience, whether it's drama, whether it's comedy, whether it's satire or very somber. Um, and I think that's what artists of color and all artists just want the right to be able to do is to make their little weird corner of art. Um, uh, and that's what entertainment and publishing still have to kind of give us the right to do. Sometimes they want us to be the Indian novel or the Indian, uh, or the Indian, um, uh, the Indian show and stand for everyone. There's a, a pretty, I found, what I found pretty fascinating part of your book where you have this character from the mid, from the 19th century who is uh, literally digging for gold uh, in California. Could you talk a bit about your interest and research into perhaps deeper histories of Indians in America and how important that is when trying to to locate a sense of Indianness in this country and, and why that matters to you? Yeah, um, the my kind of answer in my 20s to what does it mean to be both Indian and American uh, really did end up coming from history. There's a book that I always recommend um, uh, to people called Bengali Harlem and the Lost Histories of South Asian America by Vivek Bald. Um, I think it's being made into a documentary that maybe just came out. Um, and I read that book and it tells the stories of a kind of a, a working class uh, South Asian diaspora, before we called it South Asia, um, Indian diaspora, um, of a lot of Bengali and Punjabi men, um, many Muslim, who jumped ship uh, from like working on like East India uh, tea company ships, um, working in, in factories, some of them came as farm workers, um, and they uh, kind of assimilated into America. They passed by uh, kind of marrying into or taking refuge in communities of color, passing for black and Puerto Rican uh, men. And uh, their history just adds this like really interesting texture. It's from before 1965 when the Heart Cellar Act was passed and uh, the kind of H-1B doctor, engineer, business person, Indians who kind of define the, the modern um, diaspora before those those kinds, my kind of Indians, came. And just learning about that, reading about that, showed me that um, our history is much more textured in America um, than I think we've been led to believe. Um, Arun Venugopal wrote um, very eloquently about this idea that we are actually a very socially engineered um, community. We were made the way we are based on kind of the needs of 1960s through 1990s immigration policy, um, uh, the desire to attract knowledge workers. And so when you start to realize that the way we look is not on purpose, we are not inherently model minorities, um, uh, then you can start to see sort of the facade of um, of everything around us, how it's not inevitable that our politics would have to line up with just being 
upper class wealthy people, how what it means to have a more kind of textured class history uh, in the country. It just it just opens things up um, and makes you realize that that we don't have to necessarily look the way we currently look. You've also written about the, the kind of the vast kind of variability of not just the South Asian American experience, but the Asian American experience. And is there a point? And you mentioned earlier that you know there's a we can opt into this Asian American identity. Do you think there is a point in America where we won't need to ever opt into this sense of solidarity or this sense of victimhood, as in some as in, as we've seen in some tragic cases? I mean. As you said, it is a very false catch-all in many ways. But what would the moment look like when we don't need to ever invoke Asian Americanness? Yeah, wow. If I if I knew that, I would be very happy. Um, it doesn't feel like that's on the horizon right now. I mean, identity is hardening, and the um, the conditions that force you to think about identity that force us to think about identity right now are they don't seem to be changing um you sitting in the newsroom might have a little bit more of a sense of that than i do but um i i wish i knew so in closing what would you say uh to a younger emerging generation of writers not that you're particularly old uh in terms of of how they should look to find their voice, how should they, you know, you you have gone about this in such an imaginative and, and, and kind of heterodox way. Uh, how what would you advise a younger emerging generation of Asian Americans on how they should find their voice? Mm, I love that question. Um, when I talk to students, I sometimes I I teach fiction. When I talk to students, I often talk to them about finding their literary ancestors. Um, and this can come in a variety of ways. It can mean, um, as it did for me, trying to find some writers who like demographically overlapped with me, like Hanif Qureshi or Salman Rushdie. But it can also mean reading beyond sort of your identity category and finding people whose just sense of self, aesthetic um, voice uh, resonates with you. And that's what I found in writers like Sadie Smith and Philip Roth. Um, so I think one thing that is really nice and helpful is to read beyond this moment. Don't just read contemporary fiction. Read contemporary fiction because you want to know what's going on now. But read fiction from 100 years ago. Read fiction from 50 years ago. Read mythological traditions. Um, I think some of the best work that is being made uh, today is as textured and complex as it is because it has an older language. Like It, it doesn't mean it's old-fashioned. It's just in conversation with older literary traditions. And the more that you can draw on, whether it's like the mythology of where your ancestors come from, um, whether it's early novels from the 19th century, whether it's 20th century, postmodern metafiction, whatever it is, you can forge who you are from multiple traditions. And that is what has made me feel free to not just be one kind of writer, one kind of Indian American novelist. Um, I just I just let myself run free on the sort of range of influences. And, and I think that's one of the best ways to, to feel like your identity belongs to you is to, to feel artistically free and read really widely, watch great films really widely. Thank you, Sanjana. Unfortunately, I think that's all the time we have today. Uh, thank you so much, Sanjana, for sharing your, your, your views with us and, and your insights. Uh, Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.